My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words are never said while standing up. These words come out of the very depth of a being that has been brought to the ground by the weight of their sorrow, their grief too heavy for them to bear, the knees buckle and the person goes to the ground and that's when these words are said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sorrow of life can be immense and we can wonder in the moments of the weight of it, where is God? Why has God forsaken me? I have witnessed, and perhaps you have too, sorrow this heavy, grief this immense. And we may wonder then, what good is God in the face of suffering? What good is God in the face of suffering? From time, at the very beginning, this has been a question that humans have asked. And it has been the hope that somehow God could be appeased or placated or at least enlisted to make life free of suffering. From the very earliest times, the primitive people sought to help God, help them be free from the difficulties of life with sacrifices, with various rituals that somehow, hopefully, would help God be nicer, help God relieve the suffering that is so inherent in life. I think that it's been a hunger for people from all time to be relieved of suffering. And it makes sense in our reasonable thinking that somehow God can relieve us of the suffering. In the lessons appointed today, the Old Testament scripture is from the book of Job. We did not read it, but you know the story of a righteous man who lost everything, more than everything. And his faithful and righteous friends came alongside of him and tried to help him make sense of his grief in order to put it in some sort of box in which it could be managed. They thought for sure Job had done something wrong. He should look again at his actions, write whatever it is, whatever mistake it was that he made so that God could relieve his suffering. You know this long fictional story that seems to wrestle with the role of suffering, the place of suffering, the fact of suffering as a part of our lives. And in it we see that there is nothing that could be done, but that God is present in the suffering. Indeed, God is present in the suffering. We hear that throughout our scriptures. It is something, though, that we forget, and even we in our most modern-day thinking, look to somehow relieve the suffering that is a part of life. I believe that Jesus' death on the cross, his crucifixion, his sacrifice, happened because people believed it needed to happen, not because God needed it. Because people believed that there needed to be some scapegoat 
for the sins of the world. Send them out on someone. I do not believe that God needed any sacrifice. And the reason that I come to that conclusion is because of the words found in Scripture. The prophets speak of it. In the sixth chapter of Micah, we hear God say, or the prophets say, What does the Lord require of you but to love justice and to do mercy and to walk humbly with our God? That's what the Lord requires, not sacrifice. The prophet Isaiah makes the same point in a very lengthy passage from the 58th chapter. He talks about the fast that the people observed, a sacrifice for God to fast. But God says through the prophet, Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? God goes on to speak through the prophet, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover them and to not hide yourself from your own kin? This is what I require, God says. There is no sacrifice except that which is born in love, in caring for one another, when you see the burden of life too heavy. And so we are faced this morning with Jesus' words. At least that's where we remember them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus is reminding us that God is in relationship with us. That's where he gets so irritated with the righteous people as we see him in the New Testament. They make a big show out of their prayers, but then they don't care for the poor among them. They wash all of their utensils, all of their food, because they want to be clean. And Jesus says, it's not what goes in, it's what comes out. They observe the laws of God, and yet they refuse healing on the Sabbath. Jesus says, it's not the sacrifice that God is looking for. It's love. It's the relationship that God longs for. And you look to keep God at a distance through a sacrifice when God wants to be drawn close. And so in our gospel reading this morning, the wise young man comes to Jesus and calls him good teacher. And Jesus says, don't try to set me up. Don't try to keep me at a distance. No one's God but good but God alone. And so this young man asked, God, asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus tells him, and he says, I've been doing that. And then did you see the words in the gospel text? Jesus looks on him and loves him and says, go and sell all that you have. And then come, follow me. This is going to feel like a sacrifice. That young man goes away, sorrowful, 
because he has a lot of possessions. I like to imagine that he does go home, that he is filled with grief, but it won't leave him and he longs to be with Jesus. That's how I like to imagine part two of that story. And that he is so moved that he decides he is going to get rid of his possessions. It takes him a long time. But the hunger to follow Jesus is there. I like to believe that he saw that Jesus looked on him in love. And that he was so moved by that love that he did eventually go and follow. Jesus draws our attention that we have all kinds of things that separate us from the love of God. And one thing is our own sense that we can save ourselves. We can save ourselves with all that we have, that we can save ourselves from the suffering of life, from the difficulties. If we have all the right stuff, enough money in the bank account, enough amenities around us, enough connections, enough security, that we believe that we can save ourselves. And Jesus says, no. The disciples then rightfully ask, when Jesus points out that we can't save ourselves, that it, wealth can even act as a preventative for coming close to God, for learning to rely on God. The disciples say, then, who can be saved? And Jesus tells him, only God can save. For humans, it's impossible. You cannot save yourself. And so we are called into relationship with Christ. It is in that relationship where salvation is made known. Because sorrow is a part of life. There is no way to protect ourselves from it. It will show up. It's part of the very fabric. But what we know is that we have a God who is familiar with suffering and does not leave us there alone with it. God has not transcended life so that God never is touching the difficulties of it. No, Paul says in his letter to the Hebrews, we have someone who knows the grief of life and is willing to be there with us. We can see this in the words of a couple of psalms in particular. In Psalm 139, we hear something that I know is familiar to you. Where can I go from your presence, the psalmist asks. Where can I flee? If I climb up to heaven, you are there. If I make the grave my bed, you are there also. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light around me turn to night, darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light to you are both alike. God comes into the midst of our suffering with us because suffering is a part of the fabric of life. It's woven into it. The thread runs perpendicular to the thread of hope, which runs perpendicular to the thread of despair, 
which runs perpendicular to the thread of joy. They can't be separated out. It's all part of the very fabric of life. I believe that when Jesus was on the cross and he started the psalm, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He meant for us to finish the psalm. If you have been beside someone as they're dying, they don't have much breath. They usually can get things started, but they can't complete them. And when you know the words that they're starting to say, you can complete it. If I were to say, our Father, you would say, exactly, because you know that's what comes next. So I want you to turn in the Book of Common Prayer to Psalm 22. It's in the back of the Book of Common Prayer on page 610. Jesus gets Psalm 22 started. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because the Psalms had been prayed day in and day out, people knew them. Even now people pray the Psalms daily. And when you do, the words of the psalmist become your words. Even this morning, we abandoned the psalm at verse 15, but as you can see, it goes on for quite a length. So I want to take up verse 22 of the 22nd psalm. I invite us to say it together in unison. Praise the Lord, you that fear him, stand in awe of him, offspring of Israel, all of you of Jacob's line, Give glory. For he does not slide over the poor in poverty, neither in the face from them, but when they cry to him, he hears them. The praise is of him, great assembly. I will put far in my vows the presence of those who worship him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek the Lord shall praise him. May your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall bow for him. For he belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. To him alone all who sleep in the earth bow down and worship. All who go down to the dust fall before him. My soul shall live for him. My descendants shall serve him. They shall be known as the Lord's forever. They shall come and make known to the people the born the saving deed that he has What good is God in the face of suffering? God is with us. Amen.